Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. But we're in Ezekiel chapter 46, and uh, we're actually going to be wrapping up our study in Ezekiel this morning. And uh, just to kind of give you a little bit of a a background, if, you, if you're not familiar with Ezekiel chapters 40, or even the book of Ezekiel, um, Ezekiel was a prophet, and uh, he was uh, uh, in Babylon at the time of the Babylonian captivity, and uh, Jerusalem, by the time Ezekiel's chapters 40 and 48 had been written, by the time he had received this vision, um, the, uh, the temple had already been destroyed for about 14 years, and uh, so the Jews, you know, they they had sinned. They didn't they didn't earn, you know, they, they deserved what they got. Uh, they they completely failed to listen to the uh, the prophets that God had sent them uh, to uh, to warn them and to get them to to turn from their ways. They continually rebuked the, the words of the prophets, and so God finally said, "Okay, you're going into captivity." So they went into captivity. Now, 14 years had passed. The temple, which, you know, it's not only a place of worship for them, but their whole life is surrounded around the temple. Uh, their whole identity, being Jewish, everything, it, it all revolves around their faith as, as Jews uh, in the temple. And so that's been destroyed. They don't have any hope. They're there in, in Babylon. And God sends Ezekiel, uh, creates or causes Ezekiel, who was born into the priesthood, actually, gives him the office of a prophet. And so Ezekiel, um, he's given visions and uh, for, well, 48 chapters worth of visions. We've gone through all of them except for these last few. And these last eight chapters here is basically comprises one vision that Ezekiel received. And the vision is for a future temple uh, that is going to be in existence. It's not there yet. It's going to be in existence during the thousand-year reign of Christ uh, on earth. And uh, if you can think of the Jewish people there, the hope that this would give them that, you know, their, dis- their temple was destroyed, they're, they're there in captivity, and God says, you're, you're going to come back into the land, I'm going to actually give you another temple, and you're going to worship me once more there in Jerusalem. And so this really is a message of hope. So when I was talking about the thousand-year reign of Christ, if you're not familiar with this, this is kind of a timeline that I created for another message before, but... Um, you have there, of course, eternity past. There's the circle on the left there. And then you have uh, Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And then you have where the symbol of the cross is. That's where Jesus Christ, you know, he, he was born and he lived and he died and, and, and died on the cross and rose again from the dead. Uh, he ascended into heaven uh, 40 days later on the day of Pentecost uh, was when the church was founded, the Holy Spirit descended on the apostles, and uh, and then we were in this age called the church age, and uh, you know, I could actually do this here, I can, let me, uh, so right now we are in this period of time, right in there, can you see that? Oh good. Um, and so, uh, that's known as the church age or the age of the Gentiles. That's the age that you and I are living in right now. Well, there's, a, there's another event that's coming, and it's known as the rapture of the church, where Jesus Christ uh, comes back for his bride, the church. And then immediately following uh, the, uh, the rapture of the church, there's going to be a seven-year 
uh, what's known as the Great Tribulation, time of Jacob's trouble, a uh, time where uh, things it's going to be cataclysmic as far as world events. Uh, Antichrist is going to be uh, to, to rise up to prominence during that time, and uh, and he's actually going to he's going to actually orchestrate it so that the Jews can build a third temple. And if you go to Israel today, there's a there's a group known as the Temple Institute in Israel, in Jerusalem. And uh, they have plans for the for the third temple. Uh, they have the priests' garments already. They've got um, they they are just they've got the utensils for doing the animal sacrifices. They have so much of it in place. They are just waiting for a temple to be built. And uh, you know the Jews have. There's a couple different opinions. Some of them feel that uh, if uh, uh, if the Messiah comes, he's going to build the temple. He's going to give them a new, new temple. And so if the Antichrist comes and, and makes it so that they can build this temple on the Temple Mound, uh, they are going to say, well, that's the Messiah. And so they're going to be deceived and they're going to start following after the Antichrist for three and a half years. And then in three and a half years, Antichrist is going to step into the temple, declare that he's God and demand that he's worshipped. And then at that point, Israel is going to realize, oh, you know, what have we done? And uh, that's when the tribulation gets really bad. So, um, at the end of those seven years is when Jesus Christ returns at the Battle of Armageddon. And uh, that is, I'll give another color here, that is right at that arrow right there. And so, at that point, Jesus Christ reigns on the earth for a thousand years. And uh, we're looking at it here in Ezekiel 40 through 48, but there I have it, Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, also talk about that time period. There's some other scriptures we'll look at in a few minutes that also talk about that. And then at the end of that a thousand years, the Bible says in Revelation that Satan's going to be loosed. He's going to be chained, bound for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, he's going to be loosed to deceive the nations once more. You might say, why? Why would God do that? Well, I think God for once and for all is going to show that mankind left to their own devices, they always go to sin because we've got that sin nature in us. And, and, and there's, there's going to be a rebellion at the end of that thousand years and uh, nations are going to once more come around Jerusalem and uh, try to wipe out Israel or wipe out Jerusalem in the camp of the saints. And that's when... Uh, the end of the millennium, that's when Jesus Christ wipes out uh, the enemies with the, with the word of his mouth, breath of his mouth. The fire is going to proceed and, and destroy them all. And that's when the great throne, uh, what's called the great white throne judgment, occurs. I'm getting kind of sloppy with my circles there, but anyways. So, just to give you a little bit of an idea, um, at the end of... Uh, after the white throne judgment there, and you can read it in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, that's when we'll have a new heaven and a new earth. So what we're talking about right now this morning is this time period right in here called the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. So... We're in Ezekiel chapter 46. If you need a Bible and you want to follow along, please raise your hand. We'll get you one so you can follow along. Anybody need one? Okay, all right. Ezekiel chapter 46, verse 1. Thus says the Lord God. Now, oh, by the way, um, this is a computer graphic. Um, they took the measurements and the calculations that are in Ezekiel based on the temple uh, that is going to exist during the millennium. And so they, this, is a, this is all plugged into this computer program, and it came out with this 
computer model. And uh, so whether it's going to actually look like this, I you know, who knows. But it will give you a good idea as far as the dimensions and kind of, kind of the way things are laid out. And so um, that's you can kind of look at as we're talking here. But in verse 1 of uh, 46 it says, Thus says the Lord God, The gateway of the inner court that faces toward the east shall be shut the six working days, but on the Sabbath it shall be opened, and on the day of the new moon it shall be opened. The prince shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gateway from the outside and stand by the gateposts. The priest shall prepare his burnt offering and his peace offerings. He shall worship at the threshold of the gate. Then he shall go out, but uh, the gate shall not be shut until evening. Likewise, the people of the land shall worship at the entrance to this gateway before the Lord on the Sabbaths and the new moons. The burnt offering that the prince offers to the Lord on the Sabbath day shall be six lambs without blemish and a ram without blemish. And the grain offering shall be one ephah for a ram, and the grain offering for the lambs as much as he wants to give, as well as a hint of oil with every ephah. On the day of the new moon it shall be a young bull without blemish, uh, six lambs and a ram, they shall be without blemish. He shall prepare a grain offering of an ephah for a bull and an ephah for a ram, as much as he wants to give for the lambs, and a hint of oil with every ephah. Um, you know, when we get into these sacrifices, uh, you know, the, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is the, the, the Lamb of God, right? Jesus Christ is our sacrifice for sin. And, and Jesus, once and for all, when He died on the cross, He satisfied God's requirement uh, for a punishment for sin. And He did that for you and I. And so, uh, you know, there's no more need for sacrifices. And so when we read about these sacrifices that occur in the millennium, it's like, wait a minute. And this is really confuses people. Because people go, well, that can't be talking about the millennium. And so then they try to spiritualize this passage of Scripture. They try to come up with different ideas. Um, the way I look at this, because I take this as a literal interpretation, and the way I look at this, all I can say is I think that these sacrifices are a, um, a reminder, like a memorial Kind of like the way we do communion. You know, we have communion here. Uh, Jesus isn't dying again on the cross. You know, this is we, we drink the grape juice and we eat the, the, the bread that symbolizes his body and his blood. But it, it's not his. It's, you know, we don't believe like some uh, religions believe that, you know, that is his blood and that is his body. We don't believe that. We believe it memorializes it. It's a symbol of that. And so I think that that's what these sacrifices will be during the millennium age also. Verse 8. When the prince enters, he shall go in by way of the vestibule of the gateway and go out the same way. In the millennial temple now, um, the gate facing towards the east, you see the east gate there, uh, it's going to be shut six working days and open on the Sabbath and on the day of the new moon. Um, that's during the millennium. That's in this temple. Um, after the millennium age... New Jerusalem, remember I showed that last slide, it showed new, a new heaven and a new earth, new Jerusalem. Uh, it's going to have no temple. Revelation twenty one twenty eight. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And then Revelation twenty one twenty five. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, there shall, and there shall be no night uh, there. So this temple in the millennium, uh, it's going to have the gates shut during a certain time. In the new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, 
there will not be a temple because there won't be a need for a temple at that point. So we're also talking about this prince here in this passage of Scripture. Who is this prince? And some people go, well, it must be Jesus Christ. Well, it's not Jesus Christ, and and for the following reasons. First of all, in chapter 45, this prince is going to offer uh, a sin offering for himself and for all the people. Uh, Ezekiel 45.22, And on that day the prince shall prepare for himself and for all the people of the land a bull for a sin offering. Well, Jesus doesn't need to offer a sin offering for himself. Uh, He is the offering for sin of the world. Then in chapter 46, it says that the prince is going to worship God. We haven't, uh, yeah, we have got to that already. Verse 2, the prince shall enter by way of the vestibule, the gateway from the outside, and stand by the gatepost. The priest shall prepare his burnt offering and his peace offering. He shall worship at the threshold of the gate. Again, Jesus is God. So Jesus isn't, doesn't need to worship himself. Also, and we haven't got to it, uh, later on in chapter 46, it's going to talk about the fact that the prince actually apparently has sons who can give an inheritance to if he wants. So, so this is not talking about Jesus. So we know who this prince isn't. It's not Jesus. But do we have any idea of who he might be? Nobody really knows. But some say that he is King David, resurrected to live during the millennium. And when we're in Ezekiel chapter 34, I don't know if you can read that, but I'll read it to you. It says, I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. And so a lot of people say, well, this prince must be uh, King David resurrected to, during, the mes- during the millennium. It may be. So it's just something, something to think about. Verse 9. But when the people of the land come before the Lord on the appointed feast days, whoever enters by way of the north gate to worship shall go out by way of the south gate. And whoever enters by way of the south gate shall go out by way of the north gate. He shall not return by way of the gate through which he came, but he shall go out the opposite gate. Now, isn't that curious? Why why would it matter? And and the gates that he's talking about, I believe, are these gates right here. If he goes in through the... Whoops, I didn't do the pen thing. If he goes in through the north gate uh, and comes in this way, uh, he'll have to go out through, this, through the other gate. He won't be able to go back out through that gate there. I just made a mess of that. <laughs> um, and so I'm wondering, wh- why, why is this? You know, you go through these, the, the measurements. We talked about the measurements of the temple in the last few chapters, and they were so detailed. And that's why I believe this is a literal interpretation, because why would there be such attention to detail? And so, again, with this detail, why would people have to go in one gate and not go back out through the same gate? Why, do they ha- why would they have to go through one gate and come out another gate? And uh, I think possibly there could be some practical reasons behind it. Because you think of how many people are going to visit uh, Jerusalem and visit the temple during the millennium. It's possible that that's uh, why they'll come there. Uh, Zechariah 8.23 talks about it. Thus says the Lord... Of hosts. In those days, ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. 
And so that, uh, you know, during that time, many people are going to be coming to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And Zechariah 8 basically also talks about this millennium period also. Um, but there's another reason, possibly, and that is what we got here in 1 Corinthians 14.33, where Paul writes that God is not the author of confusion. And so just a, you know, an orderly flow through the temple, possibly, uh, could be. That could be why. There's another reason that I think maybe maybe there's a much more deeper meaning behind it. And what I can think of is, you know, in your and my life as Christians, whenever we enter or whenever we spend time in the Lord's presence, you know, we're not to leave the same as we came, right? We're to leave changed. We're to leave transformed when we've come through, come into the Lord's presence. And I think this might be just picturing that, you know, as you come in to worship the Lord, it should have an impact on your life. There's a lot of people today that say, well, I'm a Christian. You know, I believe that Jesus died on the cross. You know, they, 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 maybe they say, well, I've prayed the sinner's prayer, or I've done this or that, or I go to church regularly, whatever they say. And, and that's fine. And, and, you know, I can't judge anyone's heart. But you look at the fruit of someone's life, and if they are, in fact, entering into the Lord's presence, there should be a change. There should be, you, should, you should be able to, for example, take a look at yourself today, in your relationship with the Lord right now today. Is it pretty good? And you, nobody has to answer, but is, you have a pretty good relationship with the Lord t- today. Is it better than what it was a year ago? Is it better than it was you know, six months ago? Or, or, or has, there been, has there been no change in your life? Because God transforms us. It's by spending time in His Word, by spending time in fellowship, by spending time in prayer. That's how God changes us. And so there should be a change. And so it could quite possibly be that, you know, uh, it's just picturing. If you go in, boy, you, better, you should come out a, a different way. And so it could be a picture of that. Verse 10. The prince shall then be in their midst. When they go out, he shall go in. Excuse me, when they go in, he shall go in. When they go out, he shall go out. At the festivals and at the appointed feast days, the grain offering shall be an ephah for a bull and an ephah for a ram, as much as he wants to give for the lambs, and a hint of oil with every ephah. Now when the prince makes a voluntary burnt offering or voluntary peace offering to the Lord, the gate that faces toward the east uh, shall then be opened for him, and he shall prepare his burnt offering and his peace offerings as he did on the Sabbath day. Then he shall go out. And after he goes out, that gate shall be shut. So, again, like I mentioned, these these offerings are a memorial looking back at what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross for your and my sin. And, you know, I think this whole time here of this millennium with the millennium temple and the sacrifices being reinstituted, I think this is really uh, ministering to the Jewish person. You know, uh, if you were to go to Israel today or you would talk to a Jewish person today about their faith you know, in Judaism, their faith in Jehovah. And, and, and one of the questions, you know, every year they have uh, Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And, and uh, for 2,000 years since the temple's been destroyed, they've celebrated the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur. And they say it's a day to afflict our souls. 
And the reason why they say that, and of course the scripture says that, but you know, they have no way to do a blood sacrifice because there's no temple. So there's no way that they can do like the Old Testament requires to go through those Levitical sacrifices. There's no way for them to do that. And so they have to come up with something. And so they say, what's well, a day to afflict our souls? And maybe they deny themselves something, you know, whatever they do during the Yom Kippur. But for 2,000 years, there's never been a sacrifice for sin for them. Well, of course, you and I know that Jesus Christ is the sacrifice for sin. He paid the price for us as well as for them. And so I think this whole millennium period is really, I think it really is a ministry to the Jewish people because it's like, you know, all those years growing up and learning about the sacrifices and all, and and then knowing that Jesus Christ satisfied it. You know, before the cross, before Calvary, the sacrifices, when the temple was still in place, the sacrifices, it was a very somber thing. I mean, here's this little animal. And you're, you're, and I, I don't mean to be graphic, but you're slitting the throat of this beautiful lamb. No spots, no blemishes. It's not lame. It's just, it's beautiful. Teresa and I were driving somewhere, and we saw these little lamb running around by a, a farm. And like, oh look, how beautiful, how cute this animal is, you know. And this innocent little animal, its throat is getting slit, and it, it's a reminder that there's a uh, a sacrifice for sin. I mean. The wages of sin. The Bible says there, Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a price to pay for your and my sin, and blood has to be shed. Now the good news, of course, for us is that Jesus Christ shed His blood for our sins. He is our sacrifice. Look at Hebrews 10, 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, speaking of Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So when these sin offerings are being offered during the millennium, I don't think it's, it's a somber, I think it's a joyous thing for the Jewish person. Because they're realizing, man, it, it's, it's, it's all complete. It's all, it's, it makes sense now. We had, a, we had an, a, a young guy here who was part of our church for a number of years, and he was Jewish. And, and he, got, he, he became born again. He, he, he entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ in our fellowship. And, you know, he didn't know much about the New Testament. In fact, he didn't know anything about the New Testament because he was Jewish. He'd, you know, go to synagogue. He was a kid. But he knew the Old Testament really well. And when he got introduced to Jesus and when he got introduced to the New Testament, you couldn't shut him up. I mean, his, he was so excited. He goes, man, this makes sense. He goes, you know, we used to do this in synagogue and, 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 and this is what it actually is, is meant. This is, this is the fulfillment of it. And so I think during the, during the millennium, it's going to be a joyous time for the Jews. So they had the sin offering that they'll be doing there. They also have what's known as the peace offering. And during the peace offering, a portion of the meat from this offering would be eaten not only by the, by the uh, it would not only be offered to the Lord on the altar, but it'd also be partaken by the person offering their, their, uh, their sacrifice. And really what that is is symbolizing that fellowship is once more restored 
uh, with God. That's why Paul wrote in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I, there's a bumper sticker. I don't know if you've ever seen it before. It says, no Jesus, no peace, no Jesus, no peace. It's, it's, it's you know, uh, K-N-O-G, K-N-O-W, like knowledge, no Jesus, and then K-N-O-W, knowledge, no peace. But then it says, no, no Jesus, like, you know, N-O, like, I don't want Jesus in my life. Well, you won't have peace in your life either. I love that bumper sticker, but I don't have it on my car. <laughs> and then they have the burn offering. We're not going to go through all the offerings, but these ones in particular I wanted to talk about. This offering is unique because this one is completely consumed on the altar. Completely, I mean, just it just burned up, basically, on the altar. Nothing is left over. And what that is a picture of, or what it was supposed to be a picture of, is when you and I surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, He has, he has it all. I mean, it's a completely, Lord, you take my life. You think of what he sacrificed for you and I. He gave his life. He, he laid down his life for you and I on the cross. And he, you know, we, the Bible says that we've been purchased by the precious blood of a lamb. And so our lives are not our own. They belong to Jesus Christ. And so that burnt offering is symbolizing how we just completely surrender every aspect of our lives to Jesus Christ. That's what that burnt offering was supposed to symbolize. Well, moving on to verse 10. The prince shall then be in their midst. When they go in, he shall go in. When they go out, he shall go out. At the festivals and the appointed feast days, the grain offering shall be an ephah for a bull and an ephah for a ram, as much as he wants to give for the lambs, and a hint of oil with every ephah. Now when the prince makes a voluntary burnt offering or a voluntary peace offering to the Lord, the gate that faces toward the east shall then be opened for him, and he shall prepare his burnt offering and his peace offerings as he did on the Sabbath day. Then he shall go out, and after he goes out, the gate shall be shut. You shall daily make it a burnt offering to the Lord of a lamb for the first year without blemish. You shall prepare it every morning. You shall prepare a grain offering with it every morning, a sixth of an ephah and a third of a hen of oil to moisten the fine flour. This grain offering is a perpetual ordinance excuse me, to be made regularly to the Lord. Verse 15. Thus they shall prepare the lamb, the grain offering, and the oil as a regular burnt offering every morning. Now what's different between the millennial sacrifices and the sacrifices in Leviticus under the Old Covenant, they had to do sacrifices morning and evening. During the millennium, apparently, the sacrifices will only occur in the morning. And you wonder, why would that be? Well, it could quite possibly be uh, because it could be a reminder because, you know, Jesus Christ was sacrificed at the time of the evening sacrifice. Or he was crucified at the time of the evening sacrifice. So I'm not saying it is, but it could be because of that. Verse 16. Thus says the Lord God, If the prince gives a gift of some of his inheritance to any of his sons, again, the prince has sons, it shall belong to his sons, it is their possession by inheritance. But if he gives a gift of some of his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be his until the year of liberty. After that, uh, after which he shall return to the prince, but his inheritance shall belong to his sons, it shall become theirs. So here the prince may give an inheritance to his sons. Now, think about this. 
If this is in fact David, like some people believe that it, this is King David, then he's giving a gift to one of his sons. And we know one of his sons was Solomon, right? Absalom was one of his sons. Uh, Nathan was one of his sons. Mary descended through Nathan. It was one of his sons. He had a lot of sons. Um, so it's kind of interesting. It's, it's a, lot of, a lot of things that I, I don't have the answer to. I, I don't know. Um, but definitely makes you think. So if he gives an inheritance to his sons, of course, that, you know, the sons, the land would stay in his tribe, in the tribe of Judah. And so uh, that's fine. If he gives it to one of his servants, and assuming one of his servants is not of the same tribe or in the same family, then at the year of Jubilee, it returns to the original owner. And uh, the way that was set up was every 50 years, and you can read about it in Leviticus chapter 25, but every 50 years the land reverted back to its original owner. And the reason why God did this was He didn't want any tribe to kind of like lose their land. And God had promised them the land of Israel, and He had promised them certain tribal portions uh, of the land. And God says, "Okay, uh, you can you can you know you can sell, you can rent out property, you can everything on." But after fifty years is the year of jubilee, and it all returns back to that original owner. Well, in the millennium, there's going to be twenty jubilee years. I think you just did the math, right? Twenty times fifty is a thousand. Interesting. Verse eighteen. Moreover, the prince shall not take any of the people's inheritance by evicting them from their property. He shall provide an inheritance for his sons from his own property, so that none of my people may be scattered from his property. So, you know, throughout Israel's history, and I think even throughout our history, people in power, people who are rulers, they take from the people, right? They, they, take, they, they, they take for themselves. Uh, and again, that's dealing with the wickedness of humans' hearts. God wanted to be Israel's king. Got, you know, Israel was ruled by the Lord. He was, they were led by the Lord for so many years. And then they looked around and they saw all these other nations. And they said, you know, we, we want an earthly king just like, just like the, uh, the Philistines have and just like the, the Amorites have. We want a king like all the other nations around us. And Samuel said, Lord, what are they doing? And, and, and the Lord spoke to Samuel and said, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They don't want me to be their king. So give them an earthly king because that's what they want. But let them know that once they get this earthly king, their earthly king is going to take the best of their land. He's going to tax them. He's going to take their young men and he's going to put them, draft them into his army. He's going to gather all kinds of stuff because it's an earthly king. It's a human with a sinful heart. And, and so God here, apparently in the millennium, he's like, that's not going to happen anymore. Remember uh, Queen Jezebel and King Ahab? You know, King Ahab was looking out and he saw this property of this guy named Naboth. And man, he really wanted this property really bad. And, and, and he tried to make a deal with Naboth. And Naboth said, no, I can't sell it to you. I don't, it, it can't, this is my family's land. I can't sell it to you. And so Ahab was really upset. And his wife Jezebel said, um, you know, what's wrong? And she said, well, Naboth wouldn't give me the land. And she said, I'll take care of it. And she had Naboth murdered. And then they seized the land from Naboth. And God says, that, that's not going to occur during the millennium. Verse 19. Going back to this diagram again. Now he brought me through the entrance which was at the side of the gate into the holy chambers of the priests which faced toward the north. 
and there a place was situated at their extreme western end. And he said to me, This is the place where the priest shall boil the trespass offering and the sin offering, where they, and where they shall bake the grain offering, so that they do not bring them out into the outer court to sanctify the people. Then he brought me out into the outer court and caused me to pass by the four corners of the court. And in fact, in every corner of the court, there was another court. In the four corners of the court were enclosed courts, courts, 40 cubits long and 30 wide. All four corners were the same size. There was a row of building stones all around in them, all around the four of them, and cooking hearths were made under the rows of stones all around. And he said to me, These are the kitchens where the ministers of the temple shall boil the sacrifices of the people. And so we have, uh, and I'm going to actually go to uh, this screen right here. So the priest chambers... I apologize, it doesn't have the whole thing there. This program, I can't figure out how to get the images right-sized in there. But um, what he's talking about, the priest chambers are here. Um, This would be the, that's north right there. So this would be west. And so this is the priest chambers there. And this is the priest kitchens where they're they're boiling the sacrifices. And also down in these, there's four corners there where they're doing that. That's basically what he's talking about. Now we're getting into chapter 47, verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside of the to the outer gateway that faces east, and there was water running out the right side. So that blue line is kind of symbolizing the water in that diagram. Now, what he said there, what we just read, was that uh, the angel brought him out of the north gate and he came around this way, to the river here at the east gate. Why didn't he just go through the east gate? Any ideas? Because it's shut. Because it's supposed to be shut because that's the the gate that the the Lord God, that Jesus Christ enters in through. And so it's to remain shut. So, interesting. But So he went around and he went to that uh, river there. Now that river, you can read about it in Joel 3.18. It says... And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with new wine, and then the hills shall flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Acacias. Um, So going back to Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 3, it says, And then... And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits, and he brought me through the waters. The water came up to my ankles. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through the waters. The water came up to my knees. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through. The water came up to my waist. Again, he measured 1,000, and it was a river that I could not cross, for the water was too deep, water in which which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. So every thousand cubits, he's, he's walking down 
downstream, basically, from this river, away from the temple. And the further he gets, the bigger the river gets, and the deeper the water gets. And so, you know, it starts out maybe as a trickle coming out of the temple, but as, as, it's, as it's just picking up and growing, and it's becoming this mighty river that can't even be crossed. Now, uh, we've got to remember now, if you read the passage of Scriptures that talks about the tribulation, the great tribulation, that seven years, the world is going to be changed dramatically. So we look at the maps and we look at things and go, well, this is, this is how it is. Well, the land is going to be completely, vastly different during the tribulation. Why do I say that? Because of the changes. In Revelation sixteen eighteen talks about a great earthquake. It says, And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as has not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And then look at that. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were, found, were not found. So, I mean, the land is going to be completely changed, transformed during the millennium uh, because of all the upheavals that have been going on there. In Zechariah 14.4, again, talking about the same time, it says, And in that day his feet, and he's speaking about Jesus, will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two uh, from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And then down a little further in verse 8 of Zechariah 14, And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. Verse 7, When I returned, there along the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and on the other. Then he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley, and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. This sea is the Dead Sea, is what he's talking about. And so during the millennium there, that water that's going to flow out of the temple, it's going to make its way to the Dead Sea. Now the Dead Sea, it's called dead because it's just salt. It's the, most, it's the saltiest body of water on the, on the planet, basically. And nothing can live in it because it's so salty. And during the millennium, that water is going to flow in and it's going to, it's going to freshen it up and it's going to bring life to the Dead Sea. The waters will be healed. Um, I've been to Israel, I've gone to the Dead Sea, and you can, it's so, because of the salinity of the water, you, you're buoyant, basically, and you, you can't sink. You can try to sink, you can't sink. And so you can actually, like this guy's there, he's just laying there, laying back, reading a newspaper or whatever. You could just float around. If you're, you, maybe you're not a good, good swimmer, go to the Dead Sea, you can fake everybody out, and you, know, you can do all the Olympic things, and people go, wow, he swims so good, because he can't sink. It's uh, cool. You know what they told us, too? When we, when we got to the Dead Sea to go into the water, they said, Ladies, don't shave your legs the night before. And, you know, don't worry about looking pretty. Just, just don't do it. And the reason why is if you go into that salty water with any kind of cuts, any kind of open wounds, it stings. And uh, after a little while, I didn't have any, any cuts or anything, but I was in there long enough. It's like, this is not getting comfortable. I had to get out of the water because it was starting to hurt. But anyways, I don't shave my legs. But 
<laughs> Verse 9. And it shall be that every living thing that moves wherever the rivers go will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish because these waters go there, for they will be healed, and everything will, will live wherever the river goes. It shall be that fishermen will stand by it from En Gedi to En Englem. They will be places for spreading their nets. Their fish will be the, of the same kinds as the fish of the great sea, exceedingly many. When he talks about the great sea, he's talking about the Mediterranean. And so this, this water, it, there's going to be fresh fish. And if you're into fishing, man, the millennium, you'll be able to fish. They probably won't even have licenses. You can probably you know, catch as much as you want. Um, and so, uh, but what's interesting about that is during the millennium, or excuse me, during the tribulation, as we see here in Revelation 16.3, one of the bowls of, of, one of the judgment bowls is that, all the living things in the sea are going to die during the Great Tribulation. And, and so it's, it's like fascinating. Um, after the Great Tribulation, God's going to restore the land. And He's going to restore, there's going to be aquatic life. There's going to be an abundance of fish. And, you know, I, all I can think about when I, when I think about that is how God can take a situation, even today in your and my lives, that seems dead. There's no hope in this situation. Trust God, because God can bring hope. He can bring life to whatever is dead. God can do it. He's powerful. And so just looking at the, the restorative and, and re, re, recreative aspects of, of the God that you and I serve. Uh, verse 11 of chapter 47. But its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be given over to salt. And so uh, apparently not all of the Dead Sea. I mean, the Dead Sea is the main body of water is going to be fresh and stuff. But there's going to be portions of this water, some backwaters or whatever, that's going to remain salty and remain dead. And you go, well, why would that be? And I think... Personally, it's just going to be a contrast so people can see the contrast between what was dead and what is now alive. And it'll just be a reminder of what God has done. Another thing to praise the Lord of. Think about where you were before you came to Jesus Christ. Think about what your life, where you were heading and the things that you were doing in your life. And I can think back to the things that I was doing. Man, I was, I was bringing on death in my life because of all the junk that I was involved with. And when I gave my heart to the Lord and He, and he transformed my life, and, and now I look back and I go, man, what was I thinking back then? Praise God. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for giving me a life. And i got a family and i got a ministry and things that none of this I deserve. But Lord God in His goodness and His gracious has given me those things. Just as He's done it for each one of us. Verse 12. Along the bank of the river, on this side and that, will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither, and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for medicine. Now, I'm not going to read this passage of Scripture, but in Revelation 22, uh, again, there's, there's a precursor. Uh, this is in the new heaven, new earth, there's also going to be a, uh, a water of life flowing from the throne of God. Um, again, there won't be a temple. It'll just be flowing from the throne of God. And so I think the, the river in the millennium is a precursor to what we're going to see in, uh, in heaven. 
Now when we get into verse um, 13 through 23, we get the borders of the land. God's going to describe the borders of the land to Ezekiel. And um, we'll read through part of it uh, and then go on to the next chapter. But thus says the Lord God, These are the borders by which you shall divide the land as an inheritance among the twelve tribes of Israel. Joseph, Joseph shall have two portions. You shall inherit it equally with one another. For I raise my hand in an oath to give it to your fathers. And this land shall, be, shall fall to you as your inheritance. This shall be the border of the land on the north. Uh, and then he goes through the, the names of the cities on the north. And then on the east side, uh, he says, You shall mark out the border from between Haran and Damascus. And he goes through that. And then on the south side, he says, Toward the south shall be from Tamar to the waters of Meribah by Kadesh, um, along to the brook to the great sea. This is the south side. And then finally gets to the west side. And he gives them the names of these cities, which probably don't mean anything to us at this point. But then he says, Thus you shall divide the, this land among yourselves, according to the tribes of Israel. It shall be that you shall divide it by lot as an inheritance for yourselves and for the strangers who dwell among you, who bear children among you. They shall be to you as native born among the children of Israel. They shall have an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. And it shall be that in whatever tribe the stranger dwells, there you shall give him his inheritance, says the Lord God. Again, the Gentiles those that are alive during the millennium, they're, they're going to they're gonna come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. They're going to say, hey, you're a Jewish person. Let's go with you. Take us to Jerusalem. We want to visit the Lord Jesus Christ there at the temple. And so God says, those people that come and, and they're going to live there, you're not going to treat them like strangers. You're not going to treat them like aliens. They're going to be like among you. They're going to be one with you, folks. And then chapter 48, we get to the divisions of the land. And I have to thank, I don't know if you've ever heard of Lambert Dolphin, but uh, I've gone to his website. He's a, uh, I don't know if he's a Calvary Chapel guy, but he's got a lot of stuff, a lot of good Bible study type stuff. Anyways, uh, chapter 48, beginning with the verse 1. Now these are the names of the tribes from the northern border along the road to Hethlon at the entrance of Hamath to Azan Enon, the border of Damascus northward in the direction of Hamath. There shall be one section for Dan from its east to its west side by the border of Dan. From the east side to the west, one section for Asher by the border of Asher. From one, uh, from the east side to the west, one section for Naphtali. By the border of Naphtali, from the east side to the west, one section for Manasseh. By the border of Manasseh, from the east side to the west, one section for Ephraim. By the border of Ephraim, from the east side to the west, one section for Reuben. By the border of Reuben, from the east side to the west, one section for Judah. Now, if you have a Bible that has maps, how many of you have Bibles that have maps in it? If you, if you ever look in the back there where it shows the tribes of Israel in the land of Canaan, almost, most, if you have a Bible that has maps, it'll have that map in there. It doesn't look anything like this. It's, you know, they're all over the place, those, those things. But if you notice, in the millennium, the tribes, they're just these horizontal bars of, of land that's going to belong going down to, uh, you know, working its way down Dan, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Ephraim, Reuben, Judah. And then that white section there, um, let me show you right here. Oops. That white section right there is going to be the land where that temple is that we were looking at, uh, the priest's land. And we'll read about that in a minute here. But that's what we're going to talk about um, 
in the next verse, verse 8. By the border of Judah from the east side to the west shall be the district which you shall set apart, 25,000 cubits in width, and in length the same as the other as of the other portions from the west excuse me from the east side to the west with the sanctuary in the center the district you shall set apart for the lord shall be 25000 cubits in length and 10000 in width to these to the priests the holy district shall belong on the north 25000 cubits in length on the west 10000 in width and on the east 10000 in width and on the south 25000 in length The sanctuary of the Lord shall be in the center. It shall be for the priests of the sons of Zadok who are sanctified, who have kept my charge, who did not go astray when the children of Israel went astray as the Levites went astray. And this district of land that is set apart shall be to them a thing most holy by the border of the Levites. Opposite the border of the priests, the Levites shall have an area 25,000 cubits in length, 10,000 in width, its entire length shall be 25,000, and its width 10,000. And they shall not sell or exchange any of it. They may not alienate this best part of the land, for it is holy to the Lord. The 5,000 cubits in width that remain along the edge of the 25,000 shall be for general use by the city, for dwellings and common land, and the city shall be in the center. These shall be its measurements, the north side 4,500 cubits, the south side 4,500, the east side 4,500, and the west side 4,500. The common land of the city shall be to the north, 250 cubits to the south, 250, to the east, 250, to the west, 250. The rest of the length alongside the district of the holy section shall be 10,000 cubits to the east and 10,000 to the west. It shall be adjacent to the district of the holy section, and its produce shall be for the workers of the city. The workers of the city from all the tribes of Israel shall cultivate it. The entire district shall be 25,000 cubits by 25,000 cubits four square. You shall set apart the holy district with the property of the city. The rest shall belong to the prince on one side and on the other side of the holy district and one of, and of the city's properties next to the 25,000 cubits of the holy district as far as the eastern border and westward next to the 25,000 as far as the western border adjacent to the tribal portions. It shall belong to the priest. It shall be the holy district and the sanctuary of the temple shall be in the center Moreover, apart from the possession of the Levites and the possession of the city which are in the midst of what belongs to the prince, the area between the border of Judah and the border of Benjamin shall belong to the prince. So he's basically talking about white, that white section there, the land. Again, some people take this passage of Scripture and they say, well, this is just symbolic. The only question I have to ask is, if it's symbolic, why the, why the details? Why the exact measurements and everything? What are they symbolic of? And the only thing I can say is this is a literal city that's going to exist during the millennium. And God is giving them a a very, very detailed and exact prophecy of what's going to happen. When I look at prophecies that have already been fulfilled in the Bible, you take any of the prophecies that have already been fulfilled in the Bible and you go back to where God said this is how it's going to happen... I challenge you to, to find one that God said, well, it's going to be this way, and it was fulfilled, but it was fulfilled kind of differently. You know, like it was like God was maybe being saying it was kind of symbolic the way God was saying things were going to happen. Uh-uh. 
Every prophecy that has been fulfilled has been fulfilled exactly as God has said it. And so for me, when I look at this passage of Scripture, it's like I have no reason to doubt that this is not a literal city. These are not literal measurements. And, and for me, that just trusts that you know God's Word is sure. We can rely on God's Word. We can trust God's Word. Interesting, too, uh, Judah and Benjamin, and we're, we'll be wrapping this up here in a moment, but Judah and Benjamin, uh, let me, uh, can I clear it? Oh, I don't know if I can clear it. Okay, well, here's Benjamin, and there's Judah, and they're, they're you know, the princes, the, the holy district's in the middle. And so Benjamin and Judah are kind of adjoined there to this holy district. Do you know what the name of Judah is? It's praise. Anybody know what the name of Benjamin is? It's the son of my right hand. I just think it's kind of interesting. Praise the son of my right hand. Uh, just, you know, nothing in the Bible is coincidental. God doesn't just like, oh, I just slipped that in there. You know, oh, wow, look how that fits. No, there's a reason and a purpose behind everything that God writes in his word. That's why we study through God's word the way we do. That's why we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, because the whole counsel of God was written for you and I that we might get encouraged, that we might be instructed and know how to live godly lives. Well, let's wrap this up. Verse 23. As for the rest of the tribes from the east side to the west, Benjamin shall have one section. By the border of Benjamin from the east side to the west, Simeon shall have one section. By the border of Simeon from the east side to the west, Issachar shall have one section. By the border of Issachar from the east side to the west, Zebulun shall have one section. By the border of Zebulun from the east side to the west, Gad shall have one section. By the border of Gad and on the south side toward the south, the border shall be from Tamar to the waters of Meribah by Kadesh, along the brook to the great sea. This is the land which you shall divide by lot as an inheritance among the tribes of Israel, and these are the portions, their portions, says the Lord God. Now, this last portion here talks about the gates of the city. So these are the exits of the city. I'm in verse 30. On the north side, measuring 4,500 cubits, the gates of the city shall be named after the tribes of Israel. The three gates northward, one gate for Reuben, one gate for Judah, one gate for Levi. On the east side, 4,500 cubits, three gates. One gate for Joseph, one gate for Benjamin, and one gate for Dan. On the south side, measuring 4,500 cubits, three gates. One gate for Simeon, one gate for Issachar, one gate for Zebulun. On the west side, 4,500 cubits with their three gates. One gate for Gad, one gate for Asher, and one gate for Naphtali. These measurements of the city, again, this Jerusalem during the millennium is not the same as New Jerusalem. Why? Because Revelation chapter 21 verse 15, again, in John's vision on the Isle of Patmos, he's also told to measure the city in New Jerusalem as it comes down out of heaven. And listen to these measurements. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its wall. The city is laid out at a square, its length is as great as its breadth, and he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. 12,000 furlongs is about 14,000, or excuse me, 1,400 miles. New Jerusalem is going to be 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles wide, and believe it or not, 1,400 miles high. 
massive thing that God is preparing for you and I to dwell for eternity with Him. You know, remember when Jesus said, I go to prepare a, go to prepare a mansion, you know, in my Father's house are many rooms, <laughs> 14,000 miles of it. Yeah, there's, it's big. It's big. And uh, just think of the things that God has prepared for you and I. Um, you know, the Bible says, you know, when we ask, we pray for things, it doesn't even enter our mind the things that God has planned for us. And I want to encourage you this morning because, you know, God's a God of hope. He's brought hope to the Israelites there in captivity. God's a God who can take something that's dead and bring life to it as He will here during the millennium. And God has a plan and a purpose for each one of our lives. And God's plan and His purpose as you and I surrender our lives to Jesus, He can take our life, and he, He's got something just wonderful planned for it as you and I surrender to Him and as we allow Him and we allow the Holy Spirit to guide us and to lead us. So I want to encourage you in that this morning. And believe it or not, we just finished Ezekiel. Uh, it's been a great book. I've enjoyed, I've been enjoyed studying that. And uh, we're going to take a break and get into the New Testament. And then we'll, after that, we'll head back into Daniel because we're trying to make our way through the Old Testament as well. So we'll be studying Daniel here not too long from now. But we will be looking at some uh, New Testament books here, or at least one. Um.